0: Hello, Microbigale Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And today we have a special guest, Jeff Hannigan. Now, Jeff has not only been a computational biologist at Merck for nearly the past five years, but he also leads the Boston Microbiome Meetup Group and is on the scientific committee for the Microbiome Data Conference happening in Boston this year in June. So I'd like to welcome Jeff to the show. Thank you so much for being here, Jeff
1: yeah no absolutely um, and thanks for for having me on on the podcast. This is really cool
0: let's dive right in. Can you tell us, Jeff, a little bit about yourself, particularly what is your micro moment? How did you find out about the unseen world and what is it that most captivated you about microbiology?
1: Um, yeah I mean i I feel like I kind of have micro moments every day because <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much cool stuff going on, but yeah, I mean, you know, kind of like what got me into to microbiology. You know, it, it might be a little cliche, but when I was was younger, I was one of those kids that was kind of you know into the science stuff. Um, and and my my parents and family were always really supportive of you know me going off and doing those kinds of things. And uh, yeah, you know, when I was in in high school, we read the book, the hot zone, um, which is, you know, all about Ebola. And, and I remember thinking like, that's really cool.
0: You read that um, in I high didn't school? Know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a, wow. it was like a, a late high school. It was probably like junior, senior year or something. And yeah, I like got super into it. And I was like, this is cool. And like, I was talking to our, our biology teacher and he had a student um, that had gone on to, I think the CDC or something. And uh, so it was kind of cool. Just like, Oh, you know, tell me about that. And I remember like pre-college sitting on the, uh, the, I think it was the American society for virology website. Um, it was like a an old website at the time. Was, I think it was just text basically, but they, um, they had a thing of like, if you want to be a virologist, this is how you get into it. And they're like, you should go into biochemistry or something. And so it was like, okay, cool. I'll, I guess that's what I need to do. Um, So that's kind of how I I got going. And then, yeah, kind of fast forward through, through college and and grad school and stuff. And um, yeah, still doing microbiology things and still enjoying it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so when you were in your undergrad, did you specifically go for microbiology or did, were you in biochem?
1: Uh, So I started in biochem and then I moved over to molecular biology um, just because like the way the courses worked out, the, Molecular biology had more biology courses, biochemistry had more chemistry courses and I, I wanted more of the biology courses. I did that. Um, we, we didn't really have a microbiology major, but, you know, I was able to take microbiology classes and, and learn about it and, uh, ended up, you know, spending time in a micro lab when I was there. So yeah, it, it was fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. So if you started with biochem, I'm just kind of curious, when did, when did the computational biology stuff come in? Was that not until grad school?
1: No, that's a good question. Yeah, that wasn't until much later. Yeah. So yeah, I, I trained as a bench scientist. And then in grad school, yeah, I started to get into the microbiome and, and computational biology in my thesis lab, um, in Elizabeth Grice's lab. And yeah, I mean, I kind of knew a bit about computers before, although I'd never like taken a class in it. But yeah, I just got into it and I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and I guess that's another thing I'm still doing (laughs) is is the computational side. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Cause yeah, I love computational biology. I think it's really fascinating.
1: It's a lot of fun. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it
0: is. First, I want to know what, do you have a favorite food or beverage that is microbe inspired? (laughs)
1: yeah i mean mine is probably what a lot of people would say like beer beer yeah i mean it's it's good
0: that's a Um, common answer
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we're we're i'm not um you know talented enough to brew beer or anything like that uh, or at least nothing that's good but we do it's it's not edible but we do like um winograd ski columns with the kids we'll make we'll try making those once the weather gets good and those are always fun you can't eat them but
0: no, you know, <laughs> definitely should not eat now. a Winograski <laughs> yeah.
1: column. But it's it's within our skill set, at least to at least set those up.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, do you do that like every year with your kids? It's like an annual activity.
1: Yeah, I think we did it. We've done it for the last two summers, probably. Yeah, and they they turned out okay. So yeah, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, just for for people who don't know what a Winograski column is, can you explain it a little bit?
1: Oh yeah. So, um, what we do is we. You know if you want to make one you'll go out to the swamp or whatever and, and get a bunch of um you know silt and you'll get a, a glass container like a tall jar or something like that and i'm tr- trying to remember the exact way to do it but you uh essentially you'll put in uh like some newspaper and you'll put in uh some egg it's either the egg white or the egg yolk this is the it's terrible that I can't remember. Um, and and you put those in, and you kind of layer. It. And and ultimately, if you Google the Winogradsky column, you'll see really cool pictures of, you know, the different layers. Like as it goes from aerobic into anaerobic, um, you can kind of see how things grow. And it's it's a fun way to learn about. Microbes and to see them in their their different environments all in one place, so definitely I don't think I'm doing it justice explaining it, but people <laughs> should definitely uh, check it out
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah they're they're really fascinating. they're great pieces of artwork, I think it's a It's a wonderful way of combining science and art, I think, with the Winograski column absolutely and so kind of leading away from that, do you have a favorite microbe or favorite microbe function specific?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a cool question. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I have a f- favorite microbe because they're all, all cool, but I do, uh, I do really enjoy bacteriophages. Um, I think they have, they have a really interesting history in molecular biology and, and phage therapy and, and how that evolved over the last, I guess, 100 years or so. And of course they just they do a lot of really crazy things <laughs> and they they're always like breaking the rules of, of biology and stuff which which keeps it fun. So, yeah, I always like phages. They're always a fun thing to read about and study.
0: <laughs> yeah, they are. Is right now is America doing any phage therapy clinically or is it all on research level still?
1: It's been kind of a while since I've looked at clinicaltrials.gov. I I think there are still are some exploratory stuff going on yeah it seems like it comes and goes um i I, there's there's one company intralytics i think that does a, a lot of interesting phage therapy stuff and they've got some things um i think they might have like some fda food approvals or something like that um so there's there's some stuff going on but nothing quite big enough yet. I don't think to replace antibiotics or <laughs>
0: not yet, like not that. yet. Same with not, the probiotics, <laughs> right? And anything, <laughs> right, with, right, yeah. <laughs> we're moving in that direction. Not there quite yeah, yet.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you consider yourself more a virologist over like a microbiome? I know like microbiology is usually considered bacteria centric and then virologists are vi- viral centric and then mycologists are fungal centric. Where do you, where do you sit in the microbiology spectrum?
1: Yeah. Probably at the microbiology level, just because I think of myself kind of sitting in, you know, the bacteria slash bacteriophage camp. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, may, maybe a foot in two camps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not a bad place to be. So you've been at Merck now for about five years as a principal scientist and computational biologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into this role and what you do in this position?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So as far as my my journey, I mean, you know, I I was really, admittedly, more on the academic track for a long time. And you know, went went to get my PhD, thinking that I was probably going to, you know, be a professor or something like that. And and I started learning a bit more about industry in grad school. So I was at at Penn, which I think has good. Industry, like they put on good industry opportunities and, you know, you would hear people from like vaccine developers from companies would give talks and and like interesting scientific talks from a non-academic space, which is really cool. Like government too, we would would hear some talks about that.
0: Were were they were they talks about the job positions or are they just people from those positions giving research talks?
1: It it was more research oriented, I'd say. Um, yeah. So, so we would hear those. And then in my postdoc, I was doing some, some advising for a small startup, uh, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed
0: that. How did you get into that?
1: I, I got connected through a friend and then, yeah, it just kind of went from there. Uh, and so I, I did some advisory work for them. And and that was a lot of fun. It exposed me to more of like the startup space. And that was really great. And so in my postdoc, I kind of continued to explore these non-academic career paths um, and doing informational interviews with folks and that sort of thing. And yeah, one of the, the informational interviews I did was with someone at, you know, the Merck Exploratory Science Center where I'm at now. So you can guess <laughs> how that went. But yeah, you know, she was like, oh, you know, um, we do have a position open um, and you might be a great fit. Would you mind sending me your CV um, and we can take a look? And I thought, yeah, okay. I'll, you know, it'll be good practice. I, I did think I would have a chance, but I, I did it and it, it kind of went from there and uh, yeah, it became a job (laughs) and and I took it and and it's been a lot of fun ever since to to answer your question about what, what you do. Our site's a little unique in that we're very early stage discovery. And sometimes it's almost kind of like academic industry hybrid ish feeling stuff. So, so because of that, you know, you end up doing a lot of the same similar types of science, right? So it's just research, understanding mechanisms and figuring things out. But a, a difference, I think, between what I experienced in academia was in industry. It, it is a lot more team science kind of stuff and less of individual or very small group science that at least in my experience, that's that's what it was. And so
0: so can, you, can you dive into that idea a little bit more? Like in a academic setting, you might have a lab and that lab could have 10 people. And so you're essentially like a team, but how is it different? How is that? lab setting team different from the industry team? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, you know, some of the teams that we work on uh, can span multiple sites, for example, uh, because we are a global company. So, you know, maybe you'll have some folks that are molecular biologists um, down in Pennsylvania, and maybe some statisticians in New Jersey, and some clinicians in San Francisco, and maybe you'll get um, like machine learning folks over in the Czech Republic. Um, it's, it's really all over the place, and, and eat, sometimes you even get exposure to very different things, like uh, there'll be folks offering like a, a manufacturing perspective, right? Of, okay, you know, we're discovering this thing. What do we have to think about for when we do want to make this a medicine and be able to make it for people? Um, cause that, that comes with a lot of its own challenges. And so because of that, it just ends up being very, very interdisciplinary, a lot of thinking kind of beyond just that first scientific discovery, but then how you follow up on it and then you get people involved in that stuff. So, you know, ends up being a lot of good opportunities to learn though.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds uh, very exciting. So kind of going a little bit further in that academic lab versus industry lab, a lot of people have an idea of what a PI is leading an academic lab and having that responsibility of kind of teaching and working in the lab and managing the graduate students. How is a PI position in academia different than a principal scientist with? Be- Position in industry. Yeah,
1: no, it's it's a good question, um, and of course, you know, with the caveat that I've I've never been a PI, so I can only offer.
0: My, but you've seen, <laughs> but you've seen, seen but PIs, seen, yeah.
1: So I you've worked say, with yeah, them, yeah, exactly. I'd say in industry, one difference I think is what you touched on, right, with the teaching requirements. Obviously, it's I'd say pretty uncommon to have teaching requirements in industry. You know, you'll still give. Uh, like seminars, and we have a lot of seminar series and that sort of thing. And I actually, I have given like university lecture, like guest lectures for classes and stuff, but yeah, there's no real teaching commitment. You know, mentorship is still really critical. Like I think it is for PIs and actually a few of, of our colleagues that we've worked with here um, have gone on to grad school. Right. And so they, they went on to, to get their PhDs and, and enjoying we're still still expected to to publish in industry but it's not I don't think it's as high pressure as academia you know it's not publications important but not necessarily the first thing we think about because a lot of what we're trying to do is drug discovery and making medicine um, and we want to publish but you know I'd say at the front of our minds is more often make finding the drugs you know getting funding is always something i hear talking to people you know like i want to i want to go into industry because i don't want to write grants anymore right which uh i try to caution against because i think any any <laughs> it's
0: not as true as it seems it's,
1: it's just different right i think anytime that you're asking someone for money they're going to want to know what you're doing with it um, and so you know the the exact mechanisms can be different and and the amounts can be different but at the end of the day, I think, you know, you still got to justify what you're doing to someone, Um, whether or not it's the NIH or whoever, I think just changes. Um, So yeah, those are some of the differences I can think of. Um, I, I will say, you know, we have, I don't see it in the US, but in Europe, for example, it seems to be more common where we have grad students doing their PhD and then they spend like half their time doing research in industry. Um, and so there's more of that connection. Uh, but I honestly hadn't seen that in the U S but now that I've been working with people in Europe more, I do see it more often. So I don't know. Those are some rambling thoughts.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you're saying in Europe, graduate students almost have like an internship with industry at some point they're
1: Yeah. I don't know exactly what the setup is, but we've had, you know grad students on our projects and it's i think it's more than an internship um i think they actually are you know working at the company on on research yeah i uh, admittedly i don't know the details of of the arrangement um other than that there does seem to be a lot more connections in those settings
0: yeah that's a yeah that's really interesting observation i haven't heard that before I'll have to ask my, my European friends if they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they have that. As, so I want to talk a little bit more about what it means to be a computational biologist. Can you tell us what computational biology is and why it's important and what your role is in that field?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, one thing I, I think about with that is, uh, the question of you know what is a computational biologist versus a bioinformatician right
0: <laughs> versus a machine learning expert right, versus right of... <laughs> exactly
1: um and you'll probably get a different answer with whatever you ask I the the explanation I've kind of found to be helpful is when when I hear of bioinformatics it generally is in more of a um like, lack of a better word, like service provider role, right? Like you are doing the informatics for someone else who's actually, you know, taking on the research project, if that makes sense. And then computational biologist is more the scientist really driving the research um, and pushing that forward. The other way I kind of think about computational biology is that, you know, instead of using a pipette, I use a computer (laughs) kind of thing. And so a lot of, a lot of it is pretty similar, I think, to what you're doing in molecular biology or microbiology or whatever. You're just not necessarily at the bench. You're, you're using different approaches and you're using computational approaches to, to find your answers.
0: Why do you think it's important? Why is computational biology important to our society?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think with the All the big, you know, quote unquote, big data and and the crazy amount of genomics that's been enabled through all these sequencing technologies like Illumina and and others in the long-read sequencing space, we we just have so much data to get through. And I think that the computational biology space is, is so critical for getting getting a hold of that data <laughs> and, and trying to wrap your mind around it and, and figure out what it all means. Cause it is just so much. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I wonder if we can dive into a, a particular research project that you've been really proud of in, in recent years. Do you have one yeah. in mind?
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll even cheat and give you two, <laughs> But <laughs> you know, one that I thought was really, really cool. Uh, was working out this program called BGC, And it's this deep learning algorithm to identify biosynthetic gene clusters out of bacterial genomes or contigs. Um, And that was a really cool project because to the the previous point I made about, you know, team-based science, we had our group in, in Cambridge more on the biology side, you know, that's what we brought to the table And we worked with a really great group of machine learning, natural language processing experts over in the Czech Republic in in Prague. Um, And we're able to come together and, you know, teach each other, especially as we got started, there was that teaching, you know, of I'm trying to figure out what what all this means (laughs) as far as deep learning and and the craziness that they do. It's like magic. Um, And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm teaching them, you know, this is what DNA is. This is what proteins are right. And that sort of stuff that, that they hadn't had a lot of training. in. and so all that came together into, I think what was a really cool algorithm um, DPGC, which is kind of this like long short-term memory network approach to identifying biosynthetic gene clusters that, has has good performance and i think uh you know it it doesn't replace necessarily tools and i try to be cautious about that it, but i do think it offers a kind of a supplementary perspective to to what's going on so so that was a lot of fun on the the machine learning side and then another and, and that's all published i should say and so if, if people want to check that out um they can look it up
0: can you explain a little bit more what BGC is oh, and yeah, what yeah. exactly you're, you're, clustering and what that means?
1: So, so yeah, so these, uh, biosynthetic gene clusters, they're essentially these clusters of co-localized genes within a bacterial genome that together encode the machinery to, to make a secondary metabolite, to make a natural product. Um, so it, it really is a great way to understand, you know, what bacteria are making, and you can use that to understand the biosynthetic chemical landscape of the microbiome, um, and we, we did actually publish a review article on that topic as well, you know, speculating of how you could use this for drug discovery, right, because natural products can have and, and continue uh, to inspire a lot of drug discovery and development, So yeah, that's, that's what we're looking for when we look for the BGCs.
0: Yeah. I think I I recently read a paper, uh, um, Matthew Biggs at ag biome and they did a similar thing where they're using machine learning. I think they did neural network machine learning. Actually, I think they came up with three different algorithms to predict, um, fungal antifungal potential metabolites.
1: That's really cool.
0: Yeah. In agriculture. So. It's definitely becoming a, a new thing, I think. Yeah. Popping up all over the place.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's super exciting for sure.
0: Yeah. So what's your second project you'd like to share?
1: So yeah, the second one, which which is also published, we looked at uh, the association between the microbiome and vaccine response. And so we show in the paper Uh, you know, that treatment, and this is all in 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 vivo models, you know, able to show that based on, you know, different antibiotics that they're exposed to, um, we see different resulting vaccine responses, which is really interesting and really important. And then, you know, thinking about if we let the microbiome recover after an antibiotic treatment, do we also recover that vaccine response? And, and we find that to, it seems be the case that as the microbiome recovers that, that resulting vaccine response recovers. So overall, I think it's, it's a really interesting early stage look into that space, right? As far as, you know, vaccines, which are so important. And, and even now, I think more so at the top of people's minds with, with COVID and stuff you know, what, what role does the microbiome play? And then how can we use that, uh, therapeutically to make better vaccines for folks? So that that's been a fun one.
0: (laughs) So, so what were some of the responses you were seeing? Like, was it just on the efficacy of the vaccine or?
1: Yeah, it was, it was just antibody titers. Yeah. We, we did do some correlations, um, between immune signatures from like RNA-seq data and correlating that to bacterial OTUs and that sort of thing. And, and there are some interesting correlations there and it it seems to be a correlation with innate immunity, uh, at least as far as, you know, some of our early signals. So yeah, it's, it'll definitely be worth (laughs) follow-up to see.
0: Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Yeah.
1: But I mean, there's always the reproducibility of it, right? You gotta right. You try other models, <laughs> and it's all this stuff ends up being some pretty deep, deep research tracks. But yeah, should I think it's cool? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So when you say the microbiome needs to recover, what is that time frame? You worked with mice, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we we did some some mice, and the ex- main experiment we did for that, we gave them. Uh, a seven day course of antibiotics. And then we, by default, we would give them that. And then we do a day long washout and then we would start the vaccine regimen, but then we started taking it back. And so we'd say, okay, do the antibiotics and then wait seven days, do the antibiotics, wait 14, do it and wait 21. And as you step back, you see, this other step of vaccine response going up. And so pretty short time frames, honestly, uh, as far as recovery goes. So,
0: yeah. So what, what percent would you say in mice at the 21 days is the recovery of the microbiome back to where it was prior to antibiotics or it's just Ooh, closer yeah. than where it was at the beginning?
1: That's a good question. Yeah. You know, as far as we could tell, it didn't get back to where it was entirely right. before they started. Uh, which I think makes sense in the context of other literature, but it was closer to your point. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) probably as good as it was going to (laughs) get.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So what what do you think is most challenging about the kind of work that you do and using computational biology in the field of microbiology?
1: Yeah, no, good, good question. I think honestly the biggest challenge and we see this a lot is, uh, it's just a lot of data, right. To to that point around computational biology and having so much data, it's, it's more and more all the time. You know, you've got metagenomics data. You've got sometimes metatranscriptomics, metabolomics from blood, from stool, crazy amounts of data coming from all over the place (laughs) and just trying to figure out you know how can we use this effectively you know what types of analyses should we be doing what kind of like network analyses can we be doing you know what what systems biology approaches should we be leveraging it's it's just a lot of a lot of big kind of new exciting questions i think given the the maturity of the field now that there's a lot of these additional methods and platforms
0: right yeah i guess uh to look at that in the scope of your other projects. When you're thinking about one of those projects that you mentioned before, how much time does it take to go from start to finish and how much of that time is analyzing the data?
1: This week's episode of the Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research.
0: Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at ZymoResearch.com. That's Z Y M O R E S earch.com
1: Yeah, that's uh it's always the trick, right? <laughs> is is making sure that you get enough time to analyze because I think the temptation is to not you know, not always allocate as much time towards the analysis <laughs> compared to the, the data generation. Yeah. You know, I'd say in general, off the top of my head, maybe it's about half and half, especially in vivo space. You know, you spend about half your time planning the experiment, which is not not trivial, and then doing the experiment and, and getting the data and running ELISA's and all that. And, and then you get the data together and then, yeah, you have to spend a lot of time processing that data to make it into tables or whatever you want it to be. Um, and then actually doing your your statistics and your analyses on it, it takes time and, and just trying to get your mind around it and, and ask the right questions. So yeah, maybe about half and half.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say that's probably what I spend too. But yeah, getting yeah. Your, your mind around it, I think is a very good word choice to use. Cause sometimes I'll, I'll start, I'll sit down and start doing something and it you just have to sit there and think about it for a bit. And what is this going to look like? And how do you visualize it? It can be
1: tough. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I remember, especially when I was starting in this space, it's so easy to, to drown in data. Right. And so you, I feel like you have to come in with kind of a, a specific plan for what you wanna do because there's so many avenues to take and so many decisions to make. And if you don't come in with a plan, uh, yeah, at least to me, it felt like drowning in data. <laughs> and so, yeah,
0: for sure. And and there's always a different way that you can analyze the data and different ways you can visualize the data. And yeah, without a plan, you'll, you'll be stuck forever. It's a rabbit hole.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. So I know that you work mostly with bacteria, but I wanted to touch base a little bit more into bacteriophages um, like we talked about earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about the human um, virome and how what viruses play in human health?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I like that question a lot because, um, you know, I've, when I mentioned, you know, giving these academic lectures, right? Um, This is something that I think is really important to cover (laughs) early on, right? Is, is what the virum does. And I, I think of it, and I'm not the first one to obviously break it into these groups, but on one side you have the virum, which directly influences your health, like the infectious agents, like, like COVID-19, right? Um, Will infect you and, and make you sick. But that other big part of the virum are those bacteriophages that we talked about. And they can, can really influence health both directly and indirectly. And so directly, you know, there's been some actually really interesting literature around immune activation responses to phages. Um, like there's been some work suggesting TLR signaling from through phages. So, so there does seem to be an avenue for phages to directly impact human health, which is notable because I don't know if we mentioned earlier, you know, phages, bacteriophages are viruses that only infect bacteria um, and not not human cells. And so it's interesting that they can still impact human health in that way. But then maybe the more obvious way that they can impact human health is indirectly by working through bacteria. Um, so you know that virome of phages can can kill off bacteria to influence the microbial communities, or they can, you know, impact, um, activity of, of bacteria or virulence, um, and those sorts of things as well. So yeah, those are kind of the ways we think about, you know, phages and, and how they can impact health in a variety of
0: ways. Interesting. Yeah. So I know that there is, um, yeast and fungus and bacteria and viruses, like all hanging out in your gut, uh, has there been a lot of research? I don't know if you know more than I do on this, but has there been any research or a lot of research kind of trying to connect all three of those entities with the immune system and and human health and like connecting everything together?
1: Yeah. I, like you said, you know, there's a couple, but yeah, it does seem like there's not as much as there probably should be right. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense that solving, solving for all those variables would provide some really useful insights into, you know, human health and and immunology. Yeah. You you don't see as much of that though. I, I also imagine that would be a really cool data set to dig through (laughs) because
0: you'd definitely be drowning in data, but
1: (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. That would be a pretty wild data set. Yeah. I, I I should say there, you know, there have been some interesting things in like the Marine ecology space as well, um, that, that have done that. They, they have their own set of really cool systems that they get to work with. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: So do you think in the human setting, those interactions are important right now? Most people are researching primarily bacteria in the microbiome and, um, a lot is, is being associated with the bacteria in human health. Do we think that those connections are going to change as we learn more about the microbiome and the virome?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be important, honestly. Yeah. I think, you know, the more we can, Holistically understand the systems, the better. I think uh, you know we, we do what we can, right? I, I always like that that saying that. Um, how does it go? You know, no model is right, but some of them are useful. <laughs> and so, there's <laughs> definitely a, a lot of use to be had. But yeah, you know, as as it becomes more comprehensive and and you study different aspects of these ecological systems, I feel like there'll be a lot of opportunities to learn even more from that.
0: So as we're peering into this crystal ball of <laughs> the future of microbiome, do you think what do you think is the future of microbiome research in in humans? Where will we be in 10 years from now? Oof,
1: it's a good question. Yeah, I think it's exciting, honestly. I think one of the exciting aspects I think a lot about is I'm probably wrong. So I'm sure we'll all listen to this in like a year or two and be like, that was totally off. But
0: well, I mean, think two years ago of COVID, this was supposed to be over in six weeks. So. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I get the feeling that we're kind of at an inflection point or coming up to an inflection point. And, and by that, I mean, as people continue to study the microbiome and get a handle on it and and how it can be used therapeutically, I, I suspect that as we start to see some therapeutic avenues pay off and become successful, you know, I think that will probably fuel kind of a surge <laughs> in, in interest because um, because I think that's been the hard part about the microbiome, right is it's still, Relatively new in, in some ways, and there hasn't been a huge amount of really s- strong demonstrated clinical efficacy in, compared to other fields, right? Um, there has been some, but, but not as much as a lot of other fields. And so, I think once that starts to come true, <laughs> once you know the microbiome clearly impacts health and, and we get therapeutics from it, I suspect we'll probably see a lot more interest and, and maybe we'll start seeing studies like you're mentioning, you know, with, with different fungal and viral and bacterial communities, but that's all pure guesswork. So <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that's all we can do right now. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. that's
1: as I'm waving my hands over here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about your blog, because in addition to being a full-time computational biologist in industry. You also run this blog called ProPhage, the blog for bacteria, phages, computers, and science. And you've been doing it for almost a decade.
1: It's been a while, yeah.
0: <laughs> so so how did you start this site and why did you start it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I um, I was thinking about that the other day. So I started it, there was this guy um, that I worked with in grad school, Brendan Hodkinson, and he had a blog um, that he had been doing, a science blog called uh, Squamules. And and he was in like the Lichen field and, and talked a lot about that. And I thought it was really cool. <laughs> and, and so I was like, hey, how did you do that? And he showed me at the time it was um, Google Blogspot or, or whatever it was called and you know he helped me get set up and i started writing out posts and really enjoyed it i think i really really enjoyed the writing and and could use the practice writing <laughs> um so that w- worked out well and it it was just a really kind of fun way to organize my thoughts around papers i was reading and uh you know try to to share that information to people in a way that might, uh, be helpful. And so, yeah, I, I did it and I've, I've liked it. And so I just kept doing it. It's, it's definitely, uh, I don't know if you remember, remember Homestar Runner, like back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it, it felt, it feels a bit like that, right. Is, you know, Homestar Runner was, was, was great and then you know the creators went on i don't know what they ended up doing but the the website obviously did wasn't as active anymore and so it, it does feel a bit like that right you know over time it there's ups and downs as far as the amount of time that can be dedicated <laughs> to it um, but it's always a fun thing to come to and, and to write on so
0: yeah so, so thinking about how it's changed over time how has it evolved over time as far as content?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's kind of grown in its style. You know, I've, I've kind of been able to hone that craft, I guess, <laughs> if that's the right way to say it. As far as content, it has kind of always been about, you know, the science and I I try different things, right. So I'll write about papers. Um, there've been times when I've wrote about my own papers to give like a little behind the scenes kind of perspective stuff. I'll write about like how to do things. Like I had one about, you know, how to start your own lab notebook on GitHub and, you know, code things, right. With code examples. So over time I've tried stuff. Uh, I don't know if I've ever landed on any (laughs) any specific, I, I am still just trying stuff and, uh, I guess whatever, whatever feels like it's needed at the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to go about it. Right. And yeah, dabble in everything.
1: Yeah. I I will say it's, it's grown. You know, I mentioned blog spot, which was a Google thing. Um, I did eventually grow it into its own second iteration, which is, more of a dedicated website blog and so that's where it lives now is it's kind of hosted through github on top of this platform called jekyll uh which lets you build it and it it does have some coding so if if folks are looking for uh excuse to do some coding (laughs) and to blog at the same time it can be a pretty cool tool um but that's that's another way that it's it's evolved
0: so so why github github would be free right to host a blog on there
1: It's free, yeah, it's free, Um, which is great. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I like that. I do like that it requires some coding because there is some flexibility that comes with that. But at the same time, it just gives me an excuse to jump into the command line a bit. Um, I did, I mean, perhaps one of my greatest scientific achievements, you know, jokingly, (laughs) was that, you know, my, my GitHub handle is microbiology. And I don't know how I got that. No one had taken it when I, when I tried it out. So through that, I get this free domain of microbiology.github.io, <laughs> uh, which has worked out really well too. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's definitely got to help draw some, some people to the site. <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning of the year, you asked the Twitterverse, what questions people had about industry and Since then, you've been creating blog posts. I think you have three right now that address one question each. What sparked this idea?
1: Yeah, I was, you know, thinking about how last year I did quite a few career chats with, you know, groups of grad students and postdocs and and that sort of thing. And and that's great. And and I love it. And I'll I'll still do it. And I, I just started thinking, you know, I can give, give that information in that way. And it's, it's a great way to do it, but is there maybe a broader way that I can provide that information to people? And so I thought, you know, why not just write it down? (laughs) Just write down what I would usually say to some common questions and uh, then people can find it, you know, kind of like how I found you know, back in the day, found it, found the ASV website that helped me learn how to be a microbiologist, you know, maybe someone can find this information and it'll help them be a microbiologist. And so, uh, that's kind of what, what sparked it. And it's, it's been really great too, just hearing the questions that folks have, cause then that helps me understand, you know, more of where the need is and where the the gaps are that I can, can try to help address. So that's, that's kind of how it, it went.
0: <laughs> yeah. So are you working on a question now or are you haven't, have you started the fourth one yet?
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's been sitting Like life got in the way the last two weeks, but, um, yeah, it is sitting on my computer. It needs to get posted. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is it on? Uh, so I actually kind of have two, one of them I'm writing up on publication in industry and what that can look like. And another one I'm kind of writing at the same time, maybe I should just pick one to finish Um, is that uh, is, is about what an interview in industry would, would be like. Cause I, I remember that was a bit of a black box for me. You know, you, you might get an interview, but who knows what that means. So, um, you know, just trying to, to at least provide what I've observed, you know, through my own experiences and, and talking to people about what that can look like. So those will, uh, will go up when I get a chance. <laughs>
0: cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to those
1: probably before this, I don't, I don't know what the turnaround between recording and air is, but
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll see who gets there first. Yeah,
1: it'll be a race. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so, so looking back on your own experiences in industry, is there anything that you had completely wrong? That you you, you're, you had thought was going to, this was what industry was when you were a grad student. But then when you transitioned, you were like, wow, that was way off.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that I've observed that I had heard differently before I joined indus- industry was about, you know, how projects can be kind of dictated to you. You know, this idea of someone from business is going to walk in and kill your project and they don't know anything about it. Right. Like that kind of sentiment. Mm -hmm. And so I had heard that at times in academia, but I I've not found that to be the case. I think it's, you know, for one you're hired as an expert in your field. And so people will want your expert opinion. Right. And they, they want to, uh, support what you do. And I'm not saying that would never happen because I'm sure there will be people listening that that have experiences that that's maybe happened. But at least in my own experience, yeah, I, I haven't really found that to be the case. It's usually usually things are are very driven by the scientists and, and their expertise is generally considered. And at least, you know, that's why I hire people that, that know this stuff is to, <laughs> to ask them these questions. So.
0: so what skills do you think are most important for people thinking of being a computational biologist or even just transitioning into industry outside of computational biology?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think the basics like R Python version control Git kind of stuff is really valuable. It can be helpful to have a GitHub account, you know, as you're looking, because uh, that that gives people something to look at and they can see, you know, where you're at with, with your coding. You know, one thing I sometimes mention is, you know, like networking can be, frankly, important, you know, going to like meet up groups and meeting people because for one, you can hear about you know, opportunities that you might not otherwise hear about. Um, And you can get like the on the ground information, right. Of, you know, is, is this a good group to, to work for or not, or, you know, what, what kind of environment is it? Is it something I would like? So that, that is kind of, it's not a computational skill, but I think it's something to definitely do um, and can be really valuable for opening up, you know, opportunities.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Networking is something I think everyone everyone ends up saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's easy to say, it's hard
0: to do. It, it
1: definitely is. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, I think often as students from whether it's undergrad or graduate school level, there's always these self-doubts of like am I ready? Is this the right career move for me? You know, what if I'm not a good fit for here? Uh did you face these similar doubts when you were transitioning into industry? Um, and if so, how did you overcome these doubts? Or what advice do you have for other people that might be facing these doubts today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge life decision, right? I mean, I I remember those days that it was at times very stressful, right? Because here I am in in this postdoc position and it, it was great. And now I'm going to move with my family halfway across the country to go pursue this other thing. Uh, and so, yeah, you hope it is great, right? <laughs> you hope it works out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, you know, you'll always have those questions of like, am I ready? Or is this the right career move? It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when, say so you're like at the swimming pool and you're on like the, The diving board right and it can be really scary to dive even though you know that it's going to be fine but you're up really high and so it can be scary i think to a point you just kind of got to do it right and jump and and face those those fears and go for it and i think you know for me it, it was really great that i could do this um in Cambridge, because if things for some reason got really bad and I needed a way out, at least I was in a place where I felt like there was other things I could pivot to if I needed. Like, not that I was going and expecting it to be bad. I definitely wasn't. Right. And it was, it's been great, but you know, as a plan B, right. You know, if, if things really go sideways, then I can, you know, find something, uh, that that's a little easier than if I was in a very remote place, you know, where maybe this was the only thing. So.
0: Right. Yeah. I know Cambridge, Boston area, there's, you know, it's dime a dozen for biotechs and a uh, lot startups. On, yeah. And, yeah <laughs> there's always someplace else to pivot towards.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So in one of your blogs, and this is a totally completely selfish question coming directly from me. Uh, one of your blogs, you advocate for doing an industry postdoc as this allows you to get your foot in the door and it can be a trial period to see if you really like the company or industry work. However, I've also heard that doing a postdoc can be really detrimental to your salary trajectory going forward as a postdoc salary is so low. For instance, like a 20% or even 40% increase in my postdoc salary right now is still well below market value. So I'm interested what your thoughts are on this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, I have thoughts. So, um,
0: no, I, <laughs> thoughts I mean, you can share. Yeah, no,
1: I mean, I I feel like I've always been a, a proponent of of higher salaries, right? And I remember I when I was a postdoc was during um, uh, I don't know if you remember when I think it was under the Obama administration, and uh, they were pushing for higher salaries for postdocs, right? It was part of the minimum wage thing, and I was obviously a big advocate of that. And, and my postdoc advisor was really great about it, honestly, and, and actually gave us, I think, competitive compensation. And, and there was a time when it looked like it was going away. And so he didn't have to give us that raise, but he did anyways, cause, cause he valued what we did. So, so that was awesome. And I think that's, that's the way to do it. Right. And people should be paid fairly. I don't think there's a question about that. So So I think, you know, as far as like, if it's good or bad for someone's career, I think it really depends on your, where you're at, right? Like it it can be such a unique position kind of thing. Like I feel for me, the postdoc worked out right. And that was an academic postdoc, which will get paid a lot less than an industry postdoc. So, you know, I was making less, but at the same time I was learning, I think really valuable skills that helped me get into the position I'm in now and and helped me be successful. So I think it works out, you know, is it for everyone? I don't think so. I don't think there's a one size fits all, but I think it can be great to learn. And yeah, I think the foot in the door aspect can be valuable. You know, If if you are on the job market and things just don't seem to be panning out, right. And your opportunities are postdocs. Doing that for a year or two could be a really great way to get your foot in the door and get going, right? And if you can find something that lets you leapfrog that, then great, you can do that, right? And, and maybe you feel like if you go straight into that kind of full industry position, maybe you won't be ready, right? Or maybe you want an opportunity to switch fields, right? And learn more computational biology, which I think you get more of that leeway, in those postdoc settings. And so, you know, on and on and on, I could go about (laughs) the the different (laughs) scenarios, but I think, yeah, I think it at the end of the day just comes down to a personal situation. Right. And yeah, I think that's it. And then of course, you know, we should all continue to be advocating for good pay (laughs) for people. right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's, I mean,
0: yeah. So over over the past hour, I think we've talked a lot about different myths and different misconceptions of industry. Do you have any other myths or, or misconceptions you want to bust right now?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered, covered a lot of good stuff.
0: Honestly,
1: I can't think of anything else off the top of my head here.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so then we went through it pretty good. Awesome. So, um, you know, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show I just have one more question, which I think is going to become a, a new way of ending the show. Um, you know, from the moment I met you, like back in October, you you've just been very giving and very. Uh, oh, you know, thanks. I'm so grateful for having you on the on the show. You lead the Boston Microbiome Meetup group. You're part of this the Microbiome Data Congress and helping out them. And you've said that you give all these talks to help other postdocs and graduate students with their careers. Um, so very grateful to have you on the show and for everything that you do. And I was wondering if there is anyone that you'd like to show some gratitude towards at the end of the show. Yeah,
1: that's, that's really nice. Yeah. Well, thank Thanks for the kind words. That's very, very nice. Yeah. There's been so many great people in my life, honestly, and I'm, I am really grateful. And there's been a lot of people that have, you know, mentored me and a lot of people that, took chances on me, which I really appreciate. Right. And that's always been a big motivator for me is, you know, to, to make sure that they, they feel like they took a good chance. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's always a little dangerous maybe to, to name people because you might leave someone <laughs> out. Right. And so I wouldn't want anyone to, to be upset, but yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I said, my, my parents were always, you know, supportive of science um, you know, as as a profession, which I think is is great. Yeah, you know, starting back in, in high school with with my biology teacher, his name was Dave Rowe, um, was great. And yeah, I I mean, I don't know how much time you have. I could probably go along a list of uh a lot of people, but you know, maybe I'll spare <laughs> spare the list and just say that I am really grateful and and I hope that I can pay that forward to other folks as well. Cause that's, I think a good way to do things. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, I mean, I would say you are definitely paying it forward (laughs) uh, more so than I see most people do. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity.